This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Panda. I felt like Welsh was appropriate. for. Is it? We'll get into that. Uh, if it was good Welsh, is it? What are we talking about tonight, Puka? Well, aside from impugning my Welsh abilities... No, I'm not impugning your Welsh abilities. <laughs> we will be talking about Isle of the Mighty once again, and we will be focusing on the third section, which is Wales, but we also have special guest Mage the Podcast host Terry Robinson with us to talk about the Mage perspective on the book as a whole. Greetings, Terry. Hello. Yes. This is the third book of the three books in the book, uh, focused on Wales, so it's three more chapters. And uh, I guess we're going to go through those three chapters first, and then we can talk about the Mage perspective of the game, of the book. So for starters, even though this is a Changeling book, it is billed as a crossover between Changeling and Mage. So that's something that we, we talked about primarily in the England section, because that has the lion's share, pun slightly intended, of the Mage content. And then the Scotland section, we kind of were searching for it and coming up with very little. And that's going to be a theme for the whale section. So zooming out a little bit, um, I guess the first question to pose is that from the perspective of a mage player, is this book useful given the way that it's kind of billed and then the actual content that a mage reader would get out of it? Is it is it worth getting for a mage player? It is. It is useful in that it contains mage things. So you can break it down into a couple couple things. And it depends on how you interpret things that are not consonant with the rest of the line. So for instance, this book introduces the idea that has been mentioned one and a half times before, that there are places on the globe that are just magic-y that aren't just notes. In mm -hmm. Book of Crafts, we get a note that's like, ah, oh, the Caribbean is super magic-y. And then we have vague notes across 1E that there are just places that are magical. And this is the other book that's like, yep, magic, what you going to do? And we don't really have that a lot in the rest of Mage. And that is both thematically appropriate, that magic is simply what you do, but also like really boring. Like mm -hmm. you can't find a weird magic well, unless at some point there was a mage who made a weird magic well that was so powerful that it had sufficient duration and quintessence and like they put a lot of oomph into it where in changeling it seems like almost the opposite there are effects that grow with time that someone does this little thing and the legend of it becomes more powerful and that original thing is kind of is kind of greater so uh, you can say it destroys the themes of mage by having that or you can say oh man there is now this new type of magic that exists in the world that not even mages can entirely understand I think that enriches things in the same way that mages don't entirely understand werewolves or vampires or changeling or raids. Like the idea that the land itself can be a little bit odd. I like, and I am fine with about 15% of the magic in the world to about 20% of the magic in the world being that. I didn't actually realize that about mage. There's no, at least from your perspective, I mean, this is mage we're talking about. So I imagine you get 
five mage fans in a row and you get seven opinions on it you, you get one because one has killed the others yes um that's the- <laughs> but so mage is the setting is very like everything magical is made by a mage is the idea uh everything that's magic with a k that a mage would call magic mm. yeah you could make the argument though that these magic places were like you just kind of appear in other places or some weird form of static magic but the magic seems to kind of move around and the mages can tell and in most cases, if there's something else, like a mage can't do anything really cool with the artifacts and items that are special to other people unless a, a sleeper or a mortal could do that anyway. Like, I don't know of any indication that a mage could use a, a treasure or activate a talon um, yeah. and the, the very few magic items that exist in, in kind of the other lines. Like, we don't get any information that mages are disproportionately able to use the treasures that are created by sorcerers, to the best of mm-hmm. my knowledge. So the idea that there's another type of magic that a mage could interface with is interesting. And normally, that kind of magic is tied to a character. Like, you have the Tremere vampire and the Hermetic that are like, you're an asshole! And the, him going, I know, you're an asshole! And the other one going, I know! And they just kind of stare at each other for a while. I don't mm-hmm. maybe they they bone after that i don't know how it works that's absolutely how vampire works <laughs> well in the new version in the new version that's released according to Anne rice they can oh that's good to know the tremere i can't quit you storyline with uh the hermetics i'm totally here for that so that's kind of new the the thing that gets me though is mage doesn't really have a notion of history in that mages don't look back centuries generally that is partially a choice of the people on the line they want your characters to populate the world they don't want long lineages the other thing is we get these wisps across mage that indicate that the number of them aren't really that large so Mm -hmm. you really have to come up with a good explanation to indicate how you have seven generations of wizards in one family if Mm -hmm. there's they're one in 500,000. That's really unlikely. And then you start getting to like brain spiders things of like, why aren't there mage breeding programs and stuff like that? Uh, cue the the early internet. Mm-hmm. So that kind of hereditary notion of the past doesn't work. And also the very notion of paradigm as presented in mage, like the past doesn't really hold power except in the form of culture. Like yeah. if I were to pick up a magical item that were 400 years old, that's a paradox magnet. It doesn't fit in with the current paradigm at all. It hasn't gotten any stronger. I feel like Everything you're saying, though, like the Verbena seem like a maybe a contra. Oh, sure. I'll take that. There are certain ones that have managed to persist. The Verbena, the Dreamspeakers, uh, for instance, as a notion. Mm-hmm. But even they in their own way have had to modernize. Like, mm-hmm. um, for instance, if you were to be a Verbena character who were to take beliefs that were four or five hundred years old, some of their practice elements would persist. But hopefully the cultural elements would probably have changed, especially if they come from a society that has very strong notions of what gender yeah. is and who can do what and what the role of a person is. Mm-hmm. So we also have this idea of unbelief that in the same way that banality can destroy things, unbelief is quite potent to the point where kind of all magical creatures more or less had to exit stage left during the shattering so to me this idea of dwelling on early history there's not much there like i'm not going to find a lot of use from a 1200 year old magical tome it's it's a historically interesting thing but it just doesn't come up in a lot of games in a a useful systematic way oh yeah because it's like maybe i'll have a rote in it but yeah (laughs) you could do that anyway right yeah and maybe you'll have a rote for not my paradigm that requires an ingredient i don't have that is tied to a node that was destroyed like it is Mm -hmm. a historical thing but there isn't quite that indiana jones vibe 
in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't give a lot to work with there. The other thing is like we talk about it in terms of a crossover book, like it depends at what level something needs to be to be a crossover. Like is Neapolitan ice cream where you have a strip of chocolate, a strip of vanilla and a strip of strawberry. Is that a crossover ice cream? What about a mixed cone where it's just the two soft serves gone together? Or does it have to be the thing where it's the chocolate and the peanut butter mixed together? This has a lot of cases where the mages are like, we know exactly what you are and you know exactly what we are and we're going to fight about something. And I just think that is the least interesting way to do crossover. I like the idea that everyone's kind of dimly aware of what the other person can do. And there's a lot of puffery. But also, are the stories true? And that to me is much more fascinating in actual gameplay where this yeah. is this is this posits a game world where people talk about the other faction using game world terms. Like I was sitting at my three point node when and you're like, that's I, that to me is not how the world would actually mm-hmm. work. But that's that's me. So how, how would you see it as like, because I know you tend to run games more than play, right? I do not know of a time when I've successfully played mage. <laughs> okay. So if you were running a mage game set in Great Britain, would mm-hmm. this be a book you would pull things from? Yes, because that history could possibly inform me as to things that contemporary practitioners would use. Like if I were to write this, I would have not a section on history, but a section on practice that references history. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where it's like, oh, we do this in this ritual on this day uh, to take advantage of this juncture to gather quintessence. And then the history comes in in the little thing where it's like, hey, we say we've been doing this for 400 years and seemingly gives us power. Actuality, in actuality, it was invented by Jim (laughs) like two years ago or something like that. Yeah. In that regard of history, I'm not sure Mage and Changeling are that different, but that's another. Changeling has like proper reincarnation though, right? Or something like that. Yeah. With really bad memory effects yeah. with the mists and whatnot <laughs> drunken reincarnation mm-hmm. and there are some groups in mage that do that too so it is possible that like your euthanatoy is actually a reincarnate of bloody blah but in mage we also have the problem of like so what reincarnation so what do like if i were to compare yeah. the forwardness of the avatar with the forwardness of a changeling seeming it feels like the seeming is more front than the avatar is yes but there's no background equivalent of remembrance is what you're getting at like a thing you roll to see what you remember yeah there's past lives but mechanically what that does is it justifies you being like well actually i'm good at this thing like Mm. (laughs) we need someone who's great at a caber toss well just turns out that a previous incarnation of me was i still have strength one but for this role i get three additional dots and caber tossmanship or uh or whatever Mm -hmm. stereotypical thing so like i feel like they have a different relationship with memory in the past in a vague sense though mages do draw from an idea that like things used to be great and then they got bad it is part of the world of darkness tendency to everything was actually fine up until about 1300 seemingly and then everything went shitty <laughs> which seems to recur across all I lines think they started to go shitty a few thousand years before then but yeah okay but, yeah may just put it a little more we we edge that up a little bit more so i guess changeling yeah. and werewolf are kind of in that camp along with vampire it's like when uh hellenistic greek showed greece showed up that's real it was a bad time and then the fall of rome was a bad time and then the renaissance was a bad time yeah <laughs> <laughs> or the or the black death i mean those are yeah well but if you're a technocrat you have a rather different perspective Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you have a nefondus you have a rather different perspective and if you have a marauder you've so (laughs) if you if you're a marauder you have a fish yes so 
they have that different relationship to history. And I don't think each can be served in the same way, but like also at the Mm -hmm. same time, this was a nineties wife wolf book. Like you read it because it had like a bunch of interesting stuff, like facts slightly misexplained to you Mm -hmm. in it. As I'm fond of saying early white wolf books were remarkable at getting you from zero dots in a topic to one dot. None of them could get you to three dots and uh, they are frequently criticized because they couldn't. And it's like, eh, like I know about the Sahelish people now and I didn't before. Some of the stuff is misexplained. I understand that, but chances are at that point I've, mm-hmm. I've started to do my own research anyway, but that's, that's just me. Um, so I think yeah. that's actually where a lot of these things shine in going from, I didn't know this even existed to now I have some information on it, which is slightly oddly inflected. And some of it may be a little bit wrong, but I consider that, I don't want to say acceptable, but it's better mm-hmm. than nothing. Yeah. The, the, I'd say that, yeah, the geography sections, like, the three books each have like a about that country mm-hmm. description, but for a changeling perspective, I think those are more useful than some of the previous changeling books we had because mm-hmm. they're not just like everything's just, Oh, I just get that from Wikipedia or something or travel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But because it's, you know, it's talking more about the changeling aspect, but I don't think you have, there's no mage equivalent of like, this is a duchy of such and such mage or whatever. This is the, place where these mages are in charge or in their politics right well in mage we don't really have setting i mean there's the one setting book for mage that otherwise i don't know how how often do you hear about mages being linked to a particular place really that's the glory of it like uh kind of in the early genesis of the game all the groups were kind of peripatetic they had their home base they had an ancestral Mm. chantry and they they could kick ass and take names there and then in second edition it became much looser Revised, I think, had my favorite definition of a tradition. It was a group tied together for political reasons in that they had a shared belief of what you must overcome to ascend. And that was a cross-cultural idea. And then we had the idea of the crafts, which were introduced to kind of be like, no, no, this is tied to a place. And one of the interesting things that M20 does is it gives us those fish out of water stories where it says, this is your home, you're a craft member, but the world needs you in some way. You receive the call to adventure. Your group says, hey, you need to go take care of this. There's a threat bigger than you can deal with. And suddenly we have those cross-cultural things. But Mage to me was always liminal. It was the Spider-Man. They were surprisingly resilient, powerful in their own ways, but they could kind of go anywhere. And I like that. And that's Mm -hmm. one of those things that's very much reading between the lines. It's not like that's stated anywhere, but yeah, the sense of place is much weaker. So one of the things this book does is by having magical places, it says, this is why you should go here. Mm-hmm. There's this dry yeah. well, and if you can restart it, a cool thing happens. Or the weird tale that says that there's a um, there's sea monsters that protect this drain that they don't want to have opened. Well, guess what? Those aren't sea monsters. Those are umbrood. <laughs> and we would like to deal with those. So yeah, Mage kind of has a different tie to a sense of place. Yeah. Yeah. And it also seems like this book, when you do get the Mage parts, if they do have a home base or something, these Mages are in this building right or this like that's where yeah, they live they operate this coffee shop they are they are waging the ascension yeah. war for the mind and soul of humanity yeah. by operating this record label it doesn't really make sense to talk about the politics of the mages in the whatever county of northumberland or something right like yeah and how they may deal with the neighboring county or something mm-hmm. or whatever geographic unit you want to call it Yes, this is me in furious agreement. And the only way to make that work is to make major territorial game by making nodes way more important. And there's this weird mm-hmm. phenomenon whereby 
in contemporary description, there's never been a case where someone's like, we need to blow up this warehouse to get the node beneath it. But like the history is strewn with things of like, well, obviously back in this olden time when reality was less constrictive and mages could gather together in castles, they had to fight more over nodes. And you're like, wait, what? That's like finding out that there was a war for oil 700 years ago for like petroleum. You're like, how did you even need it? What were you even using? What? So (laughs) that, that is another kind of internal tension that exists. Well, related to that, aside from any sort of story structures that could potentially be taken out of this book and used in Mage, do you see any thematic connections as well? Like what themes from Mage really stand out as being well suited to a Britain game or just a changeling-y kind of game? I like the idea that the Ascension War looks different in different places. Mm. I do like the collegiality that the Harbingers of Avalon kind of introduce it does also let you kind of reflect on in a world where there was the British empire. What does it mean to fight for Britannia? Is there a safe way to do that? And I think one of the recurring themes in mage is how do we reform an idea that people we hate have kind of destroyed? So uh, this happens with any number of Viking or pagan groups where somebody has decided to become a white supremacist or something like that. How do you deal with debunked science when a lot of it was kind of like backdoor racial science? How do you deal with uh, a lot of occultic beliefs that just kind of stole from Judaism? So, and Mage is a game that kind of lets you in its own little way fix that. So the idea that the war looks different in different areas, I think is, is super interesting. It also has the theme of if there are places that are more magical, what rules are we going to use as a culture to interact with one another? So we do have a few little bits like the Glastonbury compact. That's like, I hate you, you hate me, but you know what we hate even more? Tremere. And I think that's interesting. So it gives us a little bit of idea of how to run a game where shoulders can bump into each other. The other thing is... It also lets us play with the idea that the past isn't really the past. They're one of the recurring things that, that comes up from the Changeling characters, at least in here, is people are still bitter about things that happened 1,400 years ago in a very present way. And I think that is a fascinating question for a technocrat to, <laughs> to be like, how do we get people to move on when they are bitter about Hadrian's Wall? Yeah. And, and likewise, if we were going to use the notion of Britannia to pull that forward, What does that even mean? So I think there's a fascinating reflection there. And then kind of finally, one thing Mage doesn't also talk about a lot is like the pre-mages. So in Vampire, there was kind of a first vampire to most people. They are called Knights for a reason. I kind of prefer a polygenetic origin where there were actually a whole bunch of first vampires and they kind of got mixed in in the middle, but that's my weird headcanon and that there are dozens of species of vampires. They just happen to be able to kind of interbreed. And in Changeling, we have the idea that there were the Fomorians, there were the Tuatadadanan, there were the Green Men, there were the whatever. Mage doesn't really talk about that. Or if it does, it uses it in a mythic framing. And I like the idea of mages having to deal with that and that being those maybe those shards and then having to reflect on that and being like, wait, is my avatar a part of the green man? Is my avatar one of the one of the blue men that was here? Like one an episode I always wanted to do was talking about the first men that were described in I think Dark Ages Fae. The first people mm. who were able to say, yes, changelings can make, but humans can shape. Yeah, that's actually showing up in other places in Changeling. That's yeah. one thing that 
Dark Ages Fae was consistent with Changeling, I think. Yeah. So I think that's another interesting theme to play with. Are there other magic users than us? And I think if the answer is yes, boy, howdy, does that raise a lot of questions? What artifacts did they leave behind? Is there anything we can learn now? Is that what the Avatar truly is? Did reality change in some way that kind of eliminates them? And these things are not nearly as dead on the British Isles as they are in a lot of other cases where they happen in a vague prehistoric hand wavy time because back then mages didn't really exist we didn't even have the sphere system so i I think that is kind of a another theme that you can play with and i guess the last bit is magic around every corner Mm. it does a thing where it's like yeah this record shop is run by mages or this multinational concern is run by mages and it shows how like one or two well-placed technocrats are able to kind of trip up the entire technocratic operation in a country of what 65 million and i think that's kind of a neat little story to have so those are kind of the big things i take from this book which is otherwise a joy to read because it's always interesting to see what other people say about the thing you love right on yeah i mean we could ask about the if we can go to the other book what was the the those tree scotland oh the wives of the wood yeah Yeah. to me they they almost come across like the Scottish version of the Wukong, but you know, I don't know if Terry, you remember that section with the wives of the wood who have some kind of mysterious ritual where they seem to have kind of like tree sex with some kind of earthbound demonic something thoughts. Yeah. they That's the thing where they go through the ritual. What is it to, to wed the wood or something yeah. like that? I, I like that. I like the idea that there are these weird, strange, magical things out there. Um, I like the idea, for instance, that the later on when we talk about magical dynasties and lineages, it is either serial reincarnation or serial recycled retail, where there's actually like two <laughs> or three avatars, and they are just hopping generations. Or um, because mage doesn't have to make sense with physics, it is one avatar traveling back and forth through time, or one that is being split up and recombined over generations. Or that these mm-hmm. creatures are communing with some sort of dark woodland creature. I also like the idea that it talks about the fact that later on that these proto-verbena or now these verbena practitioners will sometimes enchant the workings of local witches to give Mm -hmm. them the idea that their magic is working. And that's something that like I have mixed feelings on. Like if I were in that world, would I want that to happen to me? Is that just toying with the beliefs of sleepers and kind of playing with it when I know that there is this magical potential technically inside of them that they could one day tap into. I don't know. I also like the idea that there are great land spirits that have the ability to empower and awaken people. We get a whiff of that in the book Ascension, literally the last book produced for Revised, where they talk about how even as the gauntlet is falling, Australia is fine. Hmm. The great spirits there kind of just raise its own gauntlet and it fades into its own kind of mythic world. The dream time um, opens up to them. And I like that. The problem is once those things are canonically established, you now lose the theme of subjectivity in it. But in exchange, you get a much more magical world. I'm perfectly fine with there being a couple of those out there or it being special cases or it involving an archmaster or something. I, I think stuff like that is fun, especially if it's used as a light seasoning in the same way that when I do crossover, like, yeah, you'll run into a changeling. I'm not going to introduce every kith um, because <laughs> that would be a very yes. long game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Due to title nine, I have to have equal representation for all kith in this game. <laughs> it's like a parade. 
Yep. <laughs> what is it up to? Like 110, 120? Yeah, something. <laughs> Low triple digits. And that's that's yeah. only the ones that have actual birth rates and frailties and write-ups and not... Oh, yeah, added up of... and you could play one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But to the point about things like Australia, I mean, so there are implications, I think, with the Daughters of Londona in particular that their actions doing things like that, you know, jazzing up the hedge wizard's efforts to make it more true magic-y. I mean, they never say it creates a reality zone, but that's, to use the mage terminology, that's the sense I get, where the area over which they have dominion seems to be a little bit more conducive to their way of doing magic. And we don't, as far as I know, get hard and fast rules in mage for things like, oh, if you're doing magic in the reality zone that your bloodline has helped craft over generations, Paradox doesn't hit you quite so hard, but it's another form of place-based magic to me, which it's interesting. I don't know how how thoroughly I'd want to use it, but yeah. It is also interesting to me because it suggests that a life well-lived can be an extended ritual. Mm. So one of the things where I differ from some mage fans is I believe you should be able to accidentally magic, <laughs> that you can either do it reflexively or you kind of occasionally do these subconscious effects. And I wouldn't be surprised if you say the fact that we give birth to other mages is a side effect of the fact that our way of life over centuries is actually this effect with thousands of successes accumulated into it. And that much is enough to me to create and awaken an avatar or to nudge it into the right place or to subtly read the skein of the universe perfectly so that we know that this person is going to awaken in a way that would not be replicable except by to do the exact same thing as them. Right. And, and likewise, the married to the wood is maybe a ritual that is so ancient and so and, and so exquisitely specific that you are able to get this preternatural understanding of an area and it doesn't involve a crazy umbrood like that. I like the idea that there are a lot more things in the world that are kind of magics unto themselves. Like the channel is a massive correspondence effect or a massive <laughs> matter effect or something like that that looks utterly boring, but in actuality literally reshaped the world or at least a very small portion of it underground between this particular area. And I think that is interesting. And it's just one of those things where like, these are all super interesting and either answer is fascinating to me and destroys something I think is core to mage. So it's one of those things where like, it's almost a menu where you're like, Oh, do these kind of longstanding effects exist? What would cause a magical dynasty? And they all have interesting answers to them. And none of them could be canonically true along with all the other answers to all the other questions, if that makes sense. Like, yes, you can choose yeah. um, these special options, but they're not all going to play together. Well, and it, it's up to you to figure out how you want to deal with that tension. Yeah. Just as an aside to your point about the channel, it makes me think about things like last month or the month before when the train broke down and all the people had to kind of walk up the track to get to like safety. Is that a paradox backlash? Is that banality puncturing the imaginative dream of what the channel represents? Is it both? Is it neither? Yeah. Food for thought. Yeah. And I think kind of the answer is yes. And we get a wildly different game where mm -hmm. mortals are constantly weaving small effects that they don't know about. So everyone can do magic. Mages are the only ones who are aware enough to shape it directly, consciously, and in a formal system known as the spheres. So we kind of get this fascinating world where maybe the world of darkness is a world where just things kind of break um, kind of like you have the, I can't remember which Marvel alternate reality it is, but one of them is just kind of like shitty. <laughs> and it's just, oh, there's a lot of shitty ones. Yeah. But it just, it, it just sucks. 
Yeah. And and I think that is a perfectly interesting way to do it. And it's a way that I like it because it kind of takes the piss out of the mages. Like you are just one magical worker and you are superseded by the seven or eight billion other people that are also doing magic without realizing it. And I think all of those work and are great options. And to me, all of those answers are mage. Consensus will always have more successes than you do. Yes. <laughs> Unless you're uh Moses Ben Mayaman, who apparently got more successes than God in reversing the curse. I prefer to think that that is God also having a wicked sense of humor, but that's just me. Awesome. Shall we get into the Walesy bits? The Kumrik section. I will try my best not to have like meltdown after meltdown about the the pronunciation guides to the Welsh words that they introduce in particular. Don't Walesplain. Yeah. So we start with the history of Wales, and once again we have our little frame story here of the Tailcraft Festival in the Lake District. We are now on day three, and our narrator this time is a Seely Seder by the name of Tom Sean Cutty or Tom Sean. And we also still have Professor Twidmarch kind of lurking in the background, putting together these purple sidebars that are functioning as a PowerPoint for the assembled audience. Yeah, yeah. What, one change here is they've dropped entirely the section headers. Yep, yep, they've just given up. <laughs> I want to know the story behind that, and I don't think we'll ever know. <laughs> See, I keep trying to figure out how this book was written, and I feel like it was written by committee along several different axes, and I'm just trying to parse out who did what when, and it is it is tough. It has that vague feeling that the people editing it just kind of ran out of time, as sometimes happens. Oh, yes. Uh, or they break it up into sections and they didn't have time to get the, the things to, together. And fine, sure, it's it, it's a game book. <laughs> Later on, I'm going to have a comment or three about the map. But yeah. So we start in prehistory. And again, this is, I think, even more than the other two sections, a case where the sidebars and the text basically don't correspond to each other at all. There's maybe it like... borders on pale fire in terms yeah. <laughs> of the lack of relationship. These are two different stories. And I was here for it because the sidebars were the only thing that had like made stuff in it. Yeah, exactly. And it's not that I mind the content. I mean, we get this series of vignettes that are like folktales of the Kithane, not just folktales that were inspiration for the game Changeling the Dreaming, but like, here's what Seder so-and-so did 500 years ago. So mm -hmm. I like them. It's just taking up so much space in a book that I was really expecting to tell me about the setting and ways I could use it in a game. <sighs> anyway. I think my favorite one is early on. What year did the Tuaha appear in Wales along with the Wick? Question mark. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, well, this is a placeholder. We're going to, we're going to fix it in post. Okay. We got a research guy that's working on it. <laughs> yes. The Twa Dudanan arrive, and the Wick arrive at some point BC. We get a note that Gwynedd, the northernmost principality in Wales, became a stronghold of Druidism circa 1000 BC. And then in 92 BC, Karabala was enchanted and submerged under what is now Bala Lake. And then we get a full page on Karabala that, frankly, did not stick in my mind at all. This page had Arcane 7. This is one of the two longest gaps in history in a timeline that I know, where it goes from 1000, talking about Gwynedd, to 92 BCE. Yep. The other longest one is in Loth Pass, where the Alibatine basically go from Islam to Sykes-Pico. And you're like, that's a jump, or something similar to that. I'm like, this is the second nearly 1000 year jump <laughs> in Mage. 
Isn't there some reference to Iteration X inventing fire three million years ago, though? Yeah, but no one puts that on like a proper timeline, really. It's no question mark to aha appear. It yeah. does make me wonder what the wick are, because this is now the third source that brings them up besides periodically the core book and the verbena um, books. And I wish it had a little bit more about that, but doesn't. But that's OK. Yeah. In this book, at least, it seems to refer primarily to British sorcerers who became British verbena. They're not the only verbena and they're not the only British sorcerers, but that's the through line. I was pretty excited by in um, CE19 when the mighty half uh, she half mages. Right? I'm like, give me more. <laughs> and, we, and we get nothing. Yes. Zero. Oh, it's... Yeah, I prefer to actually go full bore. And whenever people say mages, I assume that they are literally talking about a Zoroastrian priest. And hmm. that makes it even more interesting because Zoroastrianism. Yeah, I always get confused with the timeline of parts of the world because like what is ancient really depends on where you are. Like how ancient? <laughs> it's like this city's 10,000 years old in this spot. Yeah. But yeah, it's a running theme with this book is getting those little tidbits that sound fascinating and really interesting and then just never hearing about them again. Glamorgan, we at least get like references to people saying, oh, he was so great. Here's his sword. But yeah, I'd like to hear more about how that happened. Giants retreat into Cambrian mountains. Tell me more. Yeah. And I wish there were information on Druidism, because if you're going to do the history, give me the practices so that my characters can do a throwback to it. Like it, mm. it talked about the origins uh, of the picks and so on, but like, I wish I had a little bit more, for instance, even on the White Howlers, if we wanted to bring that in as an angle, which didn't really seem to be done. But one of the interesting things in this section is it talks about the sacred congregation members and the sons of Mitras, like early choristers moving into Wales. We have very little information about the period before the Messianic voices take over the Christian Messianic, <laughs> which is a part that frequently is not uh, emphasized, that kind of controlled the early chorus. I would have been fascinated to see, like, what is it like when you were that far flung and the doctrines of your group are changing? And that could have been the foundation for a really interesting, hey, the chorus in this area has this particular set of interactions and so on. We do get the mention later that Methodism is banal, which mm -hmm. I thought was just beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I like the idea that um, that Methodism was invented as a way of protecting yourself against like certain types of bad changelings. Like, mm. <laughs> yeah. there's the note here that Pictish shamans battle Celts. Some on each side lock many enemies deep underground, where some may still remain. And that's a story hook, if ever there was one. Uh huh. <laughs> that's okay. That's it. We need a dead magic STV supplement that's just like cultures we no exist but basically nothing else about them i think we could go even deeper and do yeah. dead magic ancient cultures that were vaguely referenced that buried people yep, <laughs> they're yep. like yep there could be the spirit army we don't know about awkward i think you get to I make mean, up lots of fun stuff and no one will know. oh that that's my strong suit we get into camelot at long last and arthur with this book which i'm okay with i mean the notion of whether arthur should be english or welsh kind of depends i think on your belief in the historicity and your level of engagement with Arthur as a national icon, but I'm glad that we at least got some. I think one of my favorite bits of this actually is this implication that Camelot has many versions. Like there are multiple Camelots and multiple Arthurs out there. I'm curious how that gets hashed out. Yeah, I, I like uh, Arthur being like a reverse Captain Picard where he's like French accent and 
from all the French romance writers from the, that contributed to sort of the, the lore of... Uh, I mean, I, I'm totally I'm totally on board with it. Does Changeling have other... It refers to the Dream Realm Camelot beginning to take shape, and Dream and Realm are capitalized, implying that it's kind of a game term. Are there other, other Dream Realms we get in Changeling? Yeah, they are within either the far or deep dreaming though generally got it when we do our dreams and nightmares episode there will be an encyclopedic list of them discussed in detail i do like the idea that there are these dream realms floating around and that mortals can sometimes poke at them and that they get distorted over time that's a kind of thing that to me also fits very comfortably into mage which has an uncomfortable relationship with the maya as well as with the dreaming Mm -hmm. so I, i am here for more of those and the idea, though, that, for instance, there is a member of the Harbingers of Avalon that may be a little bit more of a marauder than we think that mm-hmm. still has connection to it, I thought would have been cool. Um, but uh, to me, a lot of interesting game happens when these kind of two niche phenomenons run into each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad Dream Realms exist. Right on. There's also references here to, again, this theme that we've had elsewhere in the book of the connection between the land and the monarch and circling back to the notion of certain places being inherently magical. I feel like that's a nice little piece to connect with that. We get extensive notes about Mirzen, who the sidebar insists is not Merlin, but it's Merlin. And then more about the War of the Black Tork and Queen Kairna and Morgan Le Fay. And I'm not sure if this picture on page 135 is supposed to be Morgan Le Fay cosplaying as Lady Deathstrike from the X-Men, but I'm here for it. <laughs> I like the illustration on page 137 where I just don't know what's happening. It appears to be a very large man picking up a iceberg or something like that, or yes. possibly flashing someone. And it shows a petite man in comparison with a, some sort of pike. And the guy just has a face. He goes, Hey boss, did you say you wanted the glacial over here? And it looks like they are like building Britain, like in a literal sense in like a, <laughs> You are you are actually 100% correct, because this is one of the few instances where the art actually reflects what's in the text. <laughs> what? So uh, I quote, The giants began heaping great ice boulders in a huge pile on the slope of Mount Snowden. Ammunition, they said, and the rulers did not doubt it, for the snow giants did often throw such boulders as weapons. So there you go. Oh yeah, it's, it's literally right there. But then they betrayed their fey allies and drained the pool of Brian, which is the magical Welsh well, uh, since we have this running theme of the three wells of Britain. Do we get a concept of, I never figured out, I don't really understand what the giants are? Not really. I mean, there's there's references to them being driven into the Cambrian Mountains by Glamorgan, and then they come out to build these boulders. I guess they're, they could be a kind of bygone, and maybe they're just no longer in yeah. the world. Yeah, but they're allies of the Fae. They're not Fae. That's what it seems to be saying, yeah. I also like that it introduces yet another type of thing that used to be around that kind of isn't, because like I don't get the sense that they are tied to any existing other magical creature type, and Mage as a whole doesn't have much further information on Mm -hmm. giants. And I like that they're listed as snow giants. Mm like suggesting that there are other types. Yeah. Yeah. When somebody is talking about a represented culture in the world of darkness, not talking about India or something. Right. And they're like, well, this bit of folklore creature doesn't exist. And and they seem to think that it doesn't make sense. I'm like, no, it totally makes sense that so many things have died off since that age, according to the world of dark in the world of darkness setting as a whole. That like, yeah, that 
thing doesn't you can make reference to it but it's not around anymore that's not useful for a game necessarily clearly what we need is a separate game line for this giant the bouldering yeah hey it's a thing they haven't done yet like in either either chronicles or world of darkness yeah, why why hasn't either of these produced a game line where you're a remarkably large character? <laughs> yeah, it's like you're a giant, metaphorically. <laughs> yeah, you're an emotional giant. <laughs> I don't even know what that would mean, but I'm here for it. We get some extensive information about Prince Karniog, who is yet another Fey ruler who, in this era, ruled for centuries, apparently, and eventually fought against Queen Karna. Much desolation ensued. The end. I do like, and by like, I mean wince a little bit, that they keep talking about this central freehold, which is Kajar which is basically the Welsh for Excaliburville. So <laughs> That's amazing. Every time you pronounce something in Welsh, I just want to go, stop doing that! Sorry. Um, like... <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're like, that's what well, a Latvian sounds like. When I, came ac- when I first came across Glam Morgan... In this book, I was like, because I, I don't know a lot about Welsh mythology. And I'm like, oh, that has to be ma- Glamour Morgan. <laughs> Come on, that's... But then I... No, it's real. just Just a name. Just a name. Folk. When we get to the next chapter, I'm going to have to sound off about their their use of the Welsh language. That's the most polite way I can think of to say it. I have a question, Puka. It, is the term Welsh considered a slur by the Welsh at all? Only if you use it as a verb to mean cheat somebody. Mm. Okay. Yeah. One thing that I'm really kind of annoyed about is that there are basically no references to the stories of the Mabinogion in here, which is the quintessential body of folklore for Wales. And it would be so easy. I mean, Gwydion is in that book, you know, it would be so easy to introduce some of that into this section in this mythic age kind of story stuff, but nope. Mm hmm. I'm just going through the section here. They have the whole Madoc thing. They do. Well, they they have a, a throwaway. I actually, again, going back to the notion that maybe somebody wrote the sidebars and somebody else wrote the text. So yes, in the sidebar, they have the reference to the pretty cringy theory about Welsh Prince Madoc sailing across to the Americas before Columbus, etc. And then the the note in the text is, oh, fancy that. Never heard that before. And then like move on immediately. <laughs> So I almost wonder if that was one author's dig at the other for including it in the first place. Mm-hmm. I do like some of this high drama stuff. I just have no idea how I would actually use it in a game. And that kind of carries on yeah. <laughs> into the medieval times. Yeah, I think I think the historical stuff's about as useful for changeling as, as Terry yeah. was saying for mage. Yeah. I, of it. I, I feel like sometimes reading through crossover books, it's people going, well, this isn't for my line, so it obviously must be for the other one. And everyone else reading it also going, well, it's not for my line. Obviously, it must be for the other one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it really kind of reads like Welsh mythology fan fiction with a changeling inflection. And I mean, that is very changeling. Fair, yeah. yeah. Then in the medieval times, so they make reference to the flooding of Gwaelod, which is kind of like the Atlantis myth of Wales. It's supposed to be this mythical country under the waves off the West Coast. And they reference it, but they don't explain that, and they don't give any of the stories behind it. So it's just mm-hmm. kind of like, okay, but that happens in the context of the Shattering. It's followed pretty quickly by the revolt of Owen Glyndwr, who's a very you know landmark figure in Welsh history for rebelling against the English. 
but they don't really give any context about the English conquest and why that mattered and Edward I coming in and building castles all over. So it's like, I can't even say it's the greatest hits of this mythic history. It's kind of like the B-sides of mythic Welsh history. So I I feel like this, I'm not saying it's super useful today, but I feel like this is more useful today than when it was written because you can at least Google the stuff and like look up things around it too. And then you're like, Oh, this is something weird. You can yeah, like the little throwaways become more, you can at least look them up now. And then there's the question of how much of the stuff that's wrong. Do we just chalk up to this being technically a different world? (laughs) (laughs) Like the depression starting in 1920, but we'll get to that. That that was consistent across the three books. It sure was. They had that copy paste on the keyboard. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. but Terry, I think you probably have a more thorough knowledge of the mage canon than the two of us do. Does any of the stuff in the sidebars that has to deal with mages, because that's where it appears in this section, does that turn up anywhere else in mage canon? Like it says, Owen Grundor is a wizard. Does he turn up in mage? Not that I know of. One of my favorite ones was the, the thing where they're like, one established thing in mage continuity is that in like the 12 and 1300s, the hermetics established colleges in Europe or improved in present forms of education as a way of like promoting wonder, getting hermetic magic out there, encouraging people to avoid like going into the trades to starve the order of reason. And here it has a mention that in 1980, the hermetics do the same thing in Wales hmm. where they're like, right, didn't work in Europe. It's been 600 years. Let's dust off that little gem, see if it works. <laughs> You've got this like Bickley Scottish hermetic that's like, we're going to school the Welsh, literally. Um, I also like the fact that it lists in 1348, the gates to Arcadia shatter. They don't just close. And metaphysically, I'm kind of curious uh, what that means. It, kind of the only big thing in here that matches mage continuity is Wingard's March and the Glastonbury Compact, and a few of the very contemporary things. Yeah. But that's fine. Like, at the end of the day, it's it's an island with, like, 65 million people on it. Who cares? It can be its own thing, and I'm okay. Except for the part where it's like, Methodism is boring. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I like that it lists it as Methodism takes root. Very mundane <laughs> movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think what's what's a little bit frustrating is that, I mean, it's a changeling book, first and foremost, and yet even with the mages not really being highlighted here, they have this central impact that the story is structured around because it's things like, oh, the technocracy arrived or, oh, there was this this powerful wizard figure. And it almost feels like as a changeling player, you're meant to care more about it and shape your, your use of the material around it. Whereas the inverse is not true. Mages don't have to care about changelings. It's also a book that kind of makes me feel like changelings just use the great man theory of history. <laughs> That everything is defined by what a few key individuals made and mage is frequently not that. So it is easy to say, well, we always think that history is made by a few people being decisive and clever or alternatively brutal and cruel or something. Who can that be? Well, it couldn't be a changeling. It has to be. It's a mage. So I, I think that's that's reasonable where it just reads to me like, oh, everything is a byproduct of changelings meddling at the edges until the technocracy comes through and locks down Britain almost as thoroughly as it locks down Japan, which apparently is a thing. But that's the end of the history chapter, right? Almost. Oh, yeah. There's a couple there's a couple other little pieces. Something that 
is quintessentially Welsh, I feel, that it is talked about here, but in a very specific way, is the history of mining, coal mining in particular, and the rise of industry. So we do get the reference that in the 1760s, Benaldi entered Wales through open cast mining and poor conditions for workers. And I almost feel like that sticks more here than it did in the Scotland chapter. But in both cases, it's just kind of statement is made, and then they don't really follow it up. There will be a small vignette that vaguely deals with it, which in this case is about a glamorous coal mine. The only glamorous coal mine, and only barely glamorous, but a glamorous coal mine nonetheless. Yeah, and now that it's shut down, they do slime poetry and Rebecca Riot performs. Yeah, and a whole bunch of things in the sidebars. We get nothing on the World Wars. I mean, just, they happened. I got really aggravated about the reference that the Welsh Language Act was the doing of uh, two mages. So... <laughs> yeah, mage is pretty big on everything interesting yeah. <laughs> is done by sleepers. Yep. <laughs> Even to the point where we're like, well, the technocracy came out of the order of reason. That couldn't have been a mage. Make it Queen Victoria. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, it's like, again, that's something which could have been followed up on, but wasn't. From the mage view, this kind of perpetuates the the one E view that all major world events had mages pulling the strings. Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked about Queen Victoria. One of the key things I like about Queen Victoria is the 19th century is kind of the point where mages realize that they can no longer control everything. The technocracy, the order of reason tried to control learning and education, but once the industrial revolution got going and the enlightenment kind of got going, they were no longer in charge. If they were lucky, they could kind of steer things. And that is perfectly encapsulated by the fact that a sleeper had to sort out their stuff. They were so incapable of running humanity that a sleeper had to be the person to reorganize it. They were so behind and they were the order of reason. <laughs> that a sleeper can do it. And I think that perfectly encapsulates it. But uh, that that also happens to mirror my personal view of mage. And that is a, a sentiment that goes in and out of vogue over time. But thank you for letting me say my piece about Queen Victoria. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, overall, this chapter, thoughts? When I look at the stories presented here, the closest I could get to using them is having a little paragraph sentence, uh, like, snipping out little paragraphs that I have created a plot hook around and that I can have an NPC explain something to them <laughs> in a particular framework, which is fine, but that's a, that's a fair amount of work. The utter untie between the timeline and what is mentioned is a little bit frustrating and it suffers from white wolf last third of the book syndrome where it's like, this isn't as well edited. These things don't come together, so on and so forth. And this chapter really starts to show that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for all my talk about not being sure how this book was put together, I do agree that there was one editor who went from start to finish in like a single night, probably. <laughs> yes. And sadly, it was not an enchanted night that it extended as long as needed. <laughs> nope. Yeah, I, I feel like, though, I don't know. It's almost like the editing in the first book like on England, made a lot of decisions I didn't like. So it's almost like the lack of editing helped a bit by this point mm, in comparison. Okay. But there's certainly things I like. I mean, I didn't mind reading it. It was just trying to separate enjoyable book from thing I can use when I'm constructing a chronicle set here. And I think it fulfills the first much better than it does the second. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I liked the 
I'm just going to use this as an opportunity to pronounce as much Welsh as I can. I like the Gwilliaid Cochran Malthwi, which are the red-haired bandits, who are a bunch of redcaps that ran around ripping out the throats of cattle and sullying wells with decaying entrails. I like the Chreiberverchlandona, which is a Rabenna splinter group. Some of the figures, the great changelings of history, they're interesting figures, but short of having one of them be the final boss in a chronicle, which means you'd have to structure the entire chronicle around leading up to that, I don't really know what to do with it. And they missed opportunities too. I mean, there's there's mention of Arthurian stuff, but they don't really go deeply in depth. There's obviously all the stuff from the resurgence and they mention the War of Ivy and then they're like, oh, you've already heard too much about it, so we're not going to talk about it. It's like, well, but that's hugely important for Changeling. So I found it kind of frustrating. But in any case... yeah. I- yeah, and it would have been nice to fill in more for me. Because I feel like Wales is, like, of the sorry, countries covered by this book, is the least sort of represented in the popular culture I get, at least. So, yeah. Or, or learned about the history or anything like that. So it would have been nice to have a bit more shoring up there. But. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's the history chapter. <laughs> Shall we carry on to chapter eight? Mm-hmm. Cymrila, land of song and companions. I did Google that phrase to see if that's like a moniker for whales that I wasn't aware of, and all that came up were references to Isle of the Mighty, so I guess they just made it up. I actually quite like the atmospheric opening of this, where it's like, close your eyes and imagine an icy stream of clear mountain water washing over your bare ankles. Now imagine a cool, damp breeze as it blows through ancient rowan trees. It's like, yeah, I'm there, all right. We get a throwaway line that says the Industrial Revolution fatally wounded much of the land in the South. You wouldn't know that from the history chapter because they don't mention it at all. So It's one of those things where it is a case where I am like embarrassed for the people. Like I very rarely get embarrassed for other people, but sometimes like the write-ups are just like, ah, oh, this used to be idyllic. And then somebody came and allowed for economic modernization and now it's all ruined. And you're like, you really people live here. And maybe not everyone wants to be a turd farmer. So, and that was kind of a theme, like kind of shot through this book. And like, that's a, this is a changeling, the dreaming first edition book. Okay. Got it. That's kind of par for your course. Yeah. If turd farming was good enough for my grandfather, it's good enough for you. Oh yeah. Chapter eight. Chapter eight. Yeah. This talks about mage. Yeah. We get actual information about mages. (laughs) Yeah. We get mage politics where it's like, they're bitter and don't like each other. And the technocracy ignored it. They don't agree with each other. They're marauders. Um, The Harbinger of Avalon has been like, you know what? Let's tie up the iterators in the North Sea. Also, we don't trust the progenitors. Point of fact, the progenitors don't trust the progenitors, and that makes them the best part of the Ascension War, because they're the only ones who know that they're playing with fire, and they look at everyone else and go, hey guys, should we be playing with fire? And everyone's like, you know what we're doing, and we're like, we really don't. So I appreciate that that kind of honesty. They refer to verbena magic as being quaint, which, oh man, that sounds like one of those weird burns that is the most, uh, like, the wickedest burn one could wickedly burn like a hermetic referring to uh, someone else's effect as poorly thought out. Um, (laughs) It's one of those things where it's like, okay, he said that you need to go walk into a river now. So yes, we got a tiny amount and there were quotes. Yes. Yeah. How do we Mm -hmm. feel about the, well, mage and changeling politics sidebars that are both primarily made up of random characters quoting. At least they get a character name. Yep. Like a bunch of them aren't new. 
but a bunch of them are. So I kind of like it. If I'm going to get in world fiction, I'd actually prefer it to be in this thing where it's a short thing that says something definitive about how someone views someone else. Mm-hmm. I, I would prefer something that were more reliable narrator, but to me in character quotes about another group are the midway point between in world fiction and uh, storyteller. I'm just going to talk some straight dope. Yeah. It bothers me unreasonably that the quotes are italicized for mages, but not for changelings. I don't know why it bothers me so much, but it does. Yeah. Well, they don't do a different background color. They don't do any background color for changeling. Yeah, yeah it's, it's weird. But we got the little icons at the top, so you know, little of this little. Yeah. Thing. I do have to take like sixty to ninety seconds and just public service announcement: if anyone is interested in semi-accurately pronouncing the Welsh in this book, do not rely on the Welsh lexicon and pronunciation sidebar on page one forty-six. <laughs> You are now entering the Welsh zone. Zone, zone, zone. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, so I just have to get that out there. I mean, bless them, they tried. But we get some information on politics, economics, climate, geography, and travel, which, like the other sections, you could probably get much more updated, accurate information from a Google search or the search engine mm-hmm. of your choice. There's a wonderful little sidebar about Innismon, the Isle of Anglesey, which I remember... I can't remember if it's like just kind of a common thing people say or if I saw it somewhere specific, but it's nominally the most magical place in Britain. So this little island off the coast of Wales that's like very significant in the myth and very significant in folklore and also the church. So they have a little mini history here, which is frankly more straightforward than anything we got in the history chapter. So I'm glad to see them. They do that a lot. Yeah. I do also like, again, I think we saw this maybe in the Scotland section where there's actually a comprehensive list of major trods that crisscross Wales. That is something materially useful. (laughs) So I'm really happy to see that. And I like that they're called Sarns Mm -hmm. because in that Atlantean space off the western coast of Wales, the Gwylod Kingdom, one of the reasons why that story exists, they say, is because the action of the waves basically creates these long, causeway-like sandbars that extend way out into the water. And the idea was like, oh, those are the old roads that lead down to this sunken kingdom. Those are the Sarns. So I like that they reappropriated that for referring to trods here. Folklore connections. Hooray! And then we get another frame narrative for talking about the various fey geography kingdom things. I don't know how I feel about this frame narrative. It seemed like in the other two countries, there were kingdoms that were made of kingdoms, but here there are principalities. Is yeah. that the case? Or do they all have principalities? Are they too cool for duchies? For, uh, no, it's a, it's a, I think I know what they're doing there. That's Wales was mm-hmm. considered a prince. Like when it was taken over by England, it was considered principalities of whatever, but England was a kingdom and Scotland was a kingdom for a long time. So I think that's what they're referencing there. Got it. I think it's probably because Wales is small. And it's an unfair kind of, yeah. It was a land of realms ruled by princes rather than realms ruled by self-referring kings. So Yeah. We start with the Principality of Cloyd, the land of two valleys. So the, the sort of story underlying here is that there are these two she who went through their chrysalis together and they had been best friends and then realized that they were the reincarnations of two people who hated each other because they were in love with the same bard. And I actually really like that as a story hook. Yeah, that in general works really well for Changeling. You have like 
the change of relationship when you go through your chrysalis mm. with somebody. Yep. Gurli and Angarad. And one of the things throughout this section is that rather than county, they use the term kantrev, which is a Welsh term for county. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have kantrev Gurli, ruled over by Gurli. Within her part of the principality, we have the town of Llangollen, which is where the Eisteddfod happens. And the Eisteddfod is a giant festival of storytelling, music, dance, like all sorts of performing arts that takes place every year in Wales. It's one of the centerpieces of Welsh artistic culture. I like that they make mention of there being an archdruid, which I just assume is someone who has six dots in druid. Basically. Um, You have the three drawings of the great sword to show peace. If someone drew a sword on me three times, that's the opposite of peace. (laughs) And they do the thing where they're like, here are all the Welsh people you know about. Aren't they are famous, thus by extension. Yeah. And then John Hughes. <laughs> Something I really like in Cantreif Brennig, which is the other side of the Principality of Croyd, which is run by Countess Angarad, her Victorian manor freehold has, instead of one large bale fire, bale fire by gaslight. And that's a wonderful little mood setting kind of thing. Even if you don't use her freehold, having that as a note for another freehold, I think is pretty cool. This reminds me. When I first started playing Changeling, it was through a LARP, I mentioned this in previous episodes, the head storyteller for that LARP used so many Welsh terms for everything in Changeling, like all most of the freeholds were care or whatever and things like that. And I'm just like realizing that now. I'm like, yeah, that's why this feels... It's like, oh, this makes more sense to me now, these little bits. But I've forgotten that it was they did that. They at least use Cairn like the core book don't they i mean on like the big map of concordia yeah. on the front pages yeah that's true yeah but there's other ones too that they put some titles and mm. a lot of things are from were from welsh that he because i think he was welsh yeah right on we got a couple other little places of note like moil arthur where there's some kind of ghost who apparently turns peas into gold for people and then a pub called the iron stag run by a fiana philodox and an unseely knocker whose relationship is purely carnal do you get annoyed at the small potatoes ventures that night folk regularly do? Like anything someone with $30,000 that their parents gave them, like that is presented as, as a location where night folk gather, I think should be illegal. I, <laughs> you need to be at least a little more fantastic than that for me. I don't mind it on one level because that's often the kinds of settings that I use to you know, gradually introduce players into a game, particularly if it's their first time playing. What bothers me is that so much space in this book is dedicated to it at the expense of like how this city might function. Yeah. Yeah. Like in Changeling, especially like mechanically, it makes a little bit less sense than C20, but in Changeling, it makes sense that some Changelings would be like that. Yeah. Because you wouldn't necessarily be rich in the same way like Mage, it's just easy. But in Changeling, it depends on your character. But yeah, no, you're right. They're all small potatoes. That's not good. Especially in these ep- places with epic stuff. Yeah. I want somebody with a castle. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I want somebody with a castle. The Life and Times of a Changeling <laughs> Podcaster by uh, Josh H. I would, I would get that. I get annoyed by all the iron references that don't talk about the iron. <laughs> I assume it's like a tongue-in-cheek Changeling joke. Like, huh, we're going to name our pub Iron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after the Principality of Cloyd, we get the Principality of Gwynedd, land of mountains and meadows. 
This is the northwestern part of the country, and it's centered, I think this whole write-up pretty much is centered on Snowdonia, which is the, I think of Snowdon as kind of the Mount Fuji of Wales. It's just this emblematic mountain, and everybody goes there on trips, and it's a national park and all this stuff. And apparently it's also the site of the magical pool of Wales, sometimes. So that's cool. It seems like a nice hill. <laughs> mountain, Terry. Mountain. Yes. Yes. Even even I as an East Coaster look at this and go, that's not really. Mm, OK. <laughs> well, and they keep calling it Mount Snowden, which apparently it's one of the marks of a, a non-Welsh person if they call it Mount Snowden. The Welsh just call it Snowden. The end. Oh, okay. Is that one of those things like saying the Yangtze River or something yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. where it, you just said mountain or something? Or the La Brea Tar Pits, which technically means the the Tar Tar Pits. Which I am entirely fine with. Okay, but there's, there's, there's plenty of places where you do say that. Yeah. So it's... But I get what you're saying about it not sounding like a local. <laughs> How do you pronounce CWM space PWCA quum, as I would say it, as a filthy um, carpetbagger? That has special importance to me as a Scrabble fan, yes. as being the one of the mouthless words. So it's so it's Kumpuka. Oh, so Puka Valley. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'm also glad there's a sidebar on love spoons. What's a love spoon, Puka? So I, I will I will give you the quote from page 159. Love spoons are the traditional Welsh betrothal gift of a gentleman to his lady love. The man carves the spoon from a single block of wood with elaborate knotwork, key patterns, hearts, or whatever he imagines his lady might fancy. So, I mean, it's very traditional and heteronormative and whatnot, but it's still really cute, I think. You can give anybody flowers. You can't give just anybody a carved spoon to hang on the wall. A customly made carved love yeah. spoon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is, is it just cute or does this like depend on... Am I allowed to make fun of it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the town of Betisikoid, which the book wants you to pronounce as Betisikoid. So there's that. But it's got craft shops and a pony trekking club, etc. And then Carnarvon, which has a very impressive castle and is sort of the hub of northwestern Wales. Very beautiful. It's not a freehold. Just going back to where we need a castle. It's not. Probably <laughs> probably too touristy to be a freehold. Oh, that's true. Then there's Bryn Kellin, which is a Yildu farmstead slash grove run by Cylindra. So... Is, is a Gidu orchard kind of like a sentient chicken running an egg farm? I'm going to have to sit with that for a minute. But in the meantime, okay, can I recommend checking out Kids Book Gidu on Storytellers Hall? Sorry, I just had to do a shameless plug. That's not shameless. You did the work. You get to plug it. Damn right. Um, yeah. So then we get like a full-on page-long story about the Hlandana, which again, as mentioned, are the Daughters of Flandana, the Splinter Verbena group. And it basically just kind of rehashes what we already heard from the prologue and indicates that the sort of arranged marriages between the Daughters of the Craft and random changelings still happens. So there's that. Mm -hmm. I was made really uncomfortable by the use of the word rebirthing in that context where the mage yeah. says to the issue, perhaps you can bear word to your relations that we would not oppose rebirthing our venerable ties with the fair folk. It's like, if you're talking about a breeding program between your two branches of the supernatural tree, you know. Yes. I like the idea that it's like mages don't breed true. They're like apples. <laughs> <laughs> what, you just cut off a piece of a mage and then exactly. stick it onto us into yeah. a sleeper and then a mage, the same mage comes out? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally here for that. 
<laughs> or alternatively, like a mage has to reproduce with like a werewolf or something to get another, and they will actually just get a sorcerer. And if the sorcerer breeds with a the vampire, then you get a mage, something like that. They're kind of like tomatoes. Suddenly cutting all of the breeding stuff out of werewolf five doesn't seem like such a bad idea. Yeah. No, I was fine with that part. The stuff they cut from werewolf five, I'm fine with. It's the stuff they added. I'm not sure about. So here's this sidebar at the top of page 163 in its entirety, but I think it might be one of the most important mage related pieces of this entire book. The header is paradigms. And it says in the culture of Wales, the beliefs of the rural populace have great power. Welsh folk magic covers a wide breadth of abilities, including conjuring, charming, summoning, and divination. Will workers in this land rely heavily on these superstitions and convictions to avoid paradox. To put it simply, as long as true magic imitates the rustic beliefs of, quote, folk magic, it is coincidental. What? That seems really important yep. to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that's like the rule of mage. I know. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. it's like, did you know that mages in Wales can take advantage of their avatar to cast effects? It just seems, I mean, this to me seems like reality zone by any other name. You know, this notion that yeah. within the boundaries of Wales, if you're doing something that is traditionally Welsh and mysterious and magical, then you get away with it. As though everyone in Wales is going to uniformly. Yeah, it's it's kind of insulting to do say Wales is like this. I don't know if it's insulting. To, I just... Yeah. I. Well, no, but to say specifically Wales is like this. I think. Well, maybe, yeah. Or it's insulting to somebody. Um, but it's like Wales, not Ireland, not Scotland, not England. I feel like it's insulting to people who are familiar with mage. <laughs> also that. Yes, yes, yes. And I do like the idea that magic works perfectly as long as it is upholding stereotypes. Mm. Like, for instance, it would not be vulgar of my character to use a matter of fact to just climb to the top of a grease pole because as a Philadelphian, that is my God-given right or something like that. Excellent. Or uh, mm -hmm. if you're Michigan, you have the license plate that says pure Michigan, which I hope people locally use as a term when someone does something particular to that region. Like, yeah, guy cut across 17 lanes of traffic while drinking a White Claw and shouting the South will rise again you're Michigan. I don't know enough about Michigan to say something like that, but that's just the thing I made up on the spot. Immediately. That actually reminds me of a thing that I've been running with in Mage and didn't even realize and form, I think, codified just now that Hollywood is like a syndicate, basically way of doing this across the world mm -hmm. to make certain um, dramatic effects coincidental. It's hyper-narrative, isn't it? That would be like, yeah. It's like you see an action hero do it. You can do it. Yeah, it's kind of a benefit to mostly the technocrats. If only that worked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, disappointment. Anyway, the Thundana have this bucolic realm with a horizon realm on the other side of a hidden door in their cottage, and everyone is happy. Hooray! Yep. And the area across, you can't even tell, except for there's some extinct birds over there, possibly. And that's one of those things that really bothers me, because in Mage, if you use the M20 rules, you basically need 12 spheres with 17 dots each to create a horizon realm. And people are like, well, I have my home away from home. What should I do with it? I know. I'll make it identical to the place I'm leaving. <laughs> like, <laughs> again, we need more castles. Yeah. Dreaming has castles. Following that, we get the Principality of David, Land of Seas and Shores. I'm noticing also these sections get like shorter and shorter as you go. <laughs> mm -hmm. <Is> that... <laughs> Someone had an outline they needed to finish and the, uh, yeah. and the page count. <laughs> the due date wasn't getting any further away. Yeah. yeah. So David is kind of centered on the city of Swansea and 
again, not really much information about the city itself and just kind of these random throwaway locations, which are respectively a bike shop, a beer garden, a bookstore, the Prince's Manor, and the glamorous coal mine. So locations. It is interesting. This is the only principality ruled by a single prince and not broken up into the counties. A little bit of politics opportunities, I guess. And the beer garden is run by Fomori. Yeah, it's so boring. <laughs> Everyone gets a castle playing Changeling, the uh, Josh H. Way. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm not saying everyone gets a castle. I'm saying <laughs> there needs to be there castles. There be more castles. Okay. Yeah. When Luke and I do our episode on balloons in the world of darkness, you and I can do the castles <laughs> episode, and I'm here for it. Well, you'll you'll definitely want to listen to when we do get to Den- um, to Dreams and Nightmares, the book on the dream. Yes. Yeah. Castles galore. So the Principality of Powys. Yes. Tell us about it. Land of Forgotten Plains. They make all these references to like, oh, this the commoners of Gwynedd want to restore the glory of Powys. And oh, it's such a shame that, you know, we lost this land, blah, blah, blah. There's not really much information about how that happened and why. It is a very empty, sparsely populated, very rural section of Wales. But the implication is that it was somehow like, magically shattered and all of the something leached out or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah you broke the magic bowl and now all the magic's gone yeah but there's not really a direct reference to it though so the thing that i do like in this section so again we got a few random locations but one of them is kavath's place which is a junkyard and in that junkyard is the throne of dragons the long forgotten seat of the high kings and queens of Cymru, buried under random crap so I quite like that that's a thing. With no pointers to it existing. Right, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, well, like, before you think this is usable, dear listener. I don't know that a, I don't know that any of the other fey kingdoms or other realms is ever mentioned to have a specific magical throne. So it is unique in that way. They do have one in, in Concordia. Do they? I don't even yeah. remember it. I believe it. I just, yeah. Actually, they've got several, but there's the main one for hiking. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. And then we get another Yildu Glade in Glyn Southern. Then we get the Principality of Glamorgan, land of Black Rowan, which I think might be the most interesting because it's run by a Dauntane. So that's that's something. Yeah, how does, how does that work? So it helps to remember when this book was written because it says, so Floyd Morgenstern is the Dauntane knocker ruler. And it says he disappeared in the 80s and reappeared around in 1991 as a Dantain. Oh. So it's a fairly recent change. That being said, he's still listed as the head of Glamorgan in C20 because they didn't bother to update it. So he's been a Dantain ruler for 30 years there. <laughs> yeah, that makes less sense. Also, the change to Dantain in C20 makes yes, less sense. Yes, he's, but... he's recast as having been cursed so that each of his successive incarnations will be Dantain in order to bring it in line with how they mm. work in C20. Mm-hmm. So, But this is the principality that contains Cardiff. And once again, very little about the city. I mean, I guess more about Cardiff than about any of the other cities from the human perspective, but still only a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, well, it's a small version of what how they literally did on London. Yeah, exactly. Or Edinburgh, for that matter. But we do have a castle, Cardiff Castle. And also Hall of the Fisher King, which is basically medieval times. And the Spectrum, a New World Order Kitty Techno Museum with an IMAX subliminal theater. 
I love that where they're like, children don't run around outside and get exercise. Instead, learn about the magic of chemistry. And I'm like, wait, these are the bad guys. They're like, leave your turd farm and don't go to the acid mine. Instead, science. And I'm like, again, these are the bad guys. And it's an IMAX that has absolute colon rattling sound. It's going to be, if that's not a font of glamour, I don't know what is. Yeah. There's also this note that they demonstrate the scientific, with scientific in quotations, aspects of light, sound, and energy. And I'm just not sure why it's in quotes. Like, yeah, the scientific aspects. Okay. Are they saying they like don't, they, they, they I, teach it like not scientific? Yeah. Or? Is it, is it like yeah. they teach the controversy about light? Maybe they're teaching time cube. I don't know. That would be amazing. I also want that supplement. More castles, how to pronounce Welsh in your time cube. I'm adding it to the list. <sighs> Thank you. Maybe the author saying like in reality, like vision works by like rays shooting out of your eyes to touch the objects. Like, uh huh. <laughs> And lastly, we get the Principality of Gwynt, the Borderland. This has Tintern Abbey, which is sort of a landmark, ruined, churchy building in Wales. There's poetry written about it and stuff. Bron Methlin, which is an attractive Victorian bed and breakfast run by an S&M obsessed former harbinger of Avalon turned Barabi. And the Caerleon Linguistics Academy. Fully support that. There is a sidebar on Welsh cuisine. Which is appreciated. I have a question about the Vanishing Naga. Why is it called the Vanishing Naga? Because the name of the Knocker Wilder who runs it is coded as South Asian. Oh, okay. I just kept on being like, are they referencing that like group from Werewolf? Anyway. Well, in Werewolf, they have an H, but in Kiths of Arcadia, or Arcadia the Wild Hunt, they do not. Oh. So there's that. Hmm. But I do like that, though, that there's a Knocker who specializes in stage magic equipment. Nice. And then, uh, yeah, then we end with a closure to the frame narrative where the femme fatale issue appears to Rufi, her satyr host, and disappears in the night. <laughs> Chapter eight, everyone. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Did you, do you have an opinion on the Linguistics Academy? I mean, I support it. It should be in Aberystwyth because that's where all the really fun Welsh linguistic stuff happens, but I'll accept it. At least it's run by a tradition mage and not a technocrat. I guess that's good. But it's a chorister. Ah. Yeah, they're like, well, they're only... a Jamaican chorister. There are only four traditions in this book, and I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. So it's in chapter nine, Pook. And, and how, how do you pronounce the chapter? Ikumri. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just, just Ikumri, the people. Well, the Welsh. It's a nice parallel to the note in the Scotland chapter that they all, all the night folk and supernaturals refer to each other as Caledonii, just the Scottish. And this is probably the shortest opening summary that we've gotten in any of these um, character chapters in this book. It's just like, yes, there's a silly court. Yes, there's an unsealy court. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the part where it says, well, no stereotype accurately describes all members of a culture. The, the Welsh fall into a few general categories of appearance. Most are naturally fair skinned with dark hair and have blue, gray or green eyes. I'm just deleting that from my uh, my inputs. <laughs> yeah i also like that they retroactively justify everything they're like the fey population far outnumber the mages yep <laughs> probably not inaccurate but yeah it's probably not inaccurate and i'm entirely i'm entirely fine with that because they're like that's why we only gave you two <laughs> yeah i do like that the sealy unsealy divide is sort of paired with this other political division between the ones who want a high king and kind of unification and others that are like no we're good with the way things are and they don't 
exactly map onto Sealy Unsealy, so I like that as an additional political angle. So then there's some people, or changelings, whether or not you consider those to be people. I like the part where the description of the tradition mages is entirely an in-world ang- uh, italicized text, <laughs> where it's just like, yep, we're gonna, you're like, this is just a list of people. Yep. But we sped up through the section. Now we got to slow down because we got to hit that. We got to hit 192 pages or whatever it was. And they're just like, <laughs> yeah, uh, the cultists have changed and they're exhausting. The other thing that <laughs> bugs me about that conceit. So for the tradition mages, it's framed as a letter from Ashlon, the head of the Shandona Coven to one of their members, Sean. And they have this note that says, what do you think of this new raven delivering this letter was his maiden voyage? He's sort of a rogue, so do be sure to let us know if he found you at all. Why would you entrust a full breakdown of the traditions in Wales to a bird that you don't know if it's going to get where it's going when you know that there's like technocracy crawling through your country? Why would you do that? Anyway, I hope that Sir Mortimer Evans' seat of Cardiff was a little more discreet with his messenger. Yeah, I like how little magical power Sir Mortimer Evans has. <laughs> like in contrast to the English mages who were like, he's an initiate and he has 117 dots and an Arite of 35. Instead, it's like Arite 3 and 6 dots. I shall rule the country. Heaven's fault. Well, he is he's seat of Cardiff, which makes me wonder what the other seats are for the Harbingers of Avalon. Yeah, and the way they put it up, it kind of makes it sound like a children's game. Like, I occupy the seat of Cardiff, yeah, 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 come yeah. for me. <laughs> Which I'm also fine with. All of these are legitimate interpretations in my mind. On a scale from that to vampire princedoms, I'm wondering where they intended this to fall. Yeah, they're like, how do we tie these people to a location? Also, I, I like the fact that the entry for Jacko Kent is like, some say he's a marauder. He has a quiet of three, <laughs> but no one's entirely sure he has a quiet of three. And that's the diagnostic aspect of a marauder. Yep. He could be a traditionalist. He has a quiet of three. <laughs> so yep. we uh we got our obligatory Welsh don't fuck with me mage in the form of Axon Rowan Song. So that was nice. Because it's like blood of the seers of Kronos, the wick, Harris Marionita, a Sicilian guy that my mother had a fling with, uh, all flow through my veins. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, I just, why, why do we have to keep it reintroducing like blood quantum seemingly back? It is nice, actually, I think, that we get one tradition mage, one technocrat, one marauder, and one nefandus or nefanda, perhaps. And the changelings, I mean, I'm glad that there are two here to do mixed in here. They are both included in the Kith book on the storyteller's vault. Randomly, I like finding treasures that I really enjoy and would like to include in a game. And this book. It didn't really have compelling treasures that you had associated with the characters. They're these sort of legendary artifacts like the Black Torque, but in these character write-ups, people just have things like, she has a harp. It gives her plus one appearance when she's near it. It's like, okay, well. But then McGowan the Wanderer, who's this red cap who hikes, I guess, he has a torque that he wears and it allows him to get a general feel for other Kithane's legacies with a successful perception plus Kenning role. And it's a very minor power, but I like that it's distinctive and it doesn't fit neatly into like an art that you could cast a cantrip and Mm -hmm. do the same thing. So it's that earlier editions of Changeling having distinct items being treasures rather than just vessels for a cantrip that you couldn't afford to get the level of the art. Yes. Weird shit. I'm all for weird shit. And then we have Ulrich Onearm, who I think is secretly a giant because he says he's gigantic, even for a troll. Prince Dylan at Morgan, whose legacies are philanthropist and fop. 
and he has taxidermy one for some reason. I don't know. I mean, none of them are offensive, I guess. Just none of them are really super interesting to me. Yeah, they're not if they had people to... that have agendas that are obvious out in the world that you would have to mm-hmm. run into them at some point. I didn't really get that that feel. Yeah. I do want to ask, I mean, rocketing back to mages for a second, just because I'm noticing it in my notes. In the letter that Sir Mortimer Evans sends where he talks about the technocracy, he is talking from the perspective of the Harbingers of Avalon. Mm -hmm. And I like that it kind of gives a perspective on each convention, and it really seems like New World Order are the ones who they see themselves as being up against. Does that track with kind of the mage perspective in your opinion? Yeah, in the sense that within the technocracy, there is this fake retroactive shadow war between the money folks and the academics, as it were. So between the syndicate and the New World Order. And the New World Order is the closest the technocracy gets to an organization that really knows what everyone is doing. So there is this general idea that the New World Order defines the terms and what the objectives and targets for each amalgam or for which each area is. And then the syndicate exerts soft power over that by saying, yeah, I understand you really wanted that, but we just don't have the money for those paper clips you need. This, we really need to fund this orphan-powered space laser or something Checks like and that. Checks balances. Well, yes, as it were, uh, a soft veto or the, the veto of the purse, as it were. So that, to me, makes sense. They are a conspiracy within, inside of a conspiracy. The New World Order is like its conspiracies all the way down, or at least that is one way of interpreting it. So them being the mm. only ones that would go, wait a minute, seems entirely legitimate until their efforts to stymie another one of the groups kind of uh, comes up. Mm-hmm. All right. That reads... And it was helpful to have that perspective because I imagine that's the only in-character text from the Harbingers of Avalon we get in probably all of the games. Yes, except for a few random quotes from Sir Mortimer Evans in this book talking about peers and fox hunting. Yeah. Is this the book that introduced Harbingers of Avalon, do you think? Yes. To the best of my knowledge, this is the first reference to it. It established them as being a conspiracy. So in M20, they are listed as one of the organizations that the Disparate Alliance could recruit from, could try and convince to have joined. They get further information in Technocracy Reloaded, and they are listed as one of the conspiracies within conspiracies. And I think they are in Guide to the Technocracy, too, because I think that's where I first Okay. And it does mention that it's like, hey, what does it mean to be like Hail Britannia? Uh, especially, like, we, we talk about no one liking the Templars in the Disparate Alliance, <laughs> and to that Navalon as like the har- as the representatives of the British Empire like hold my beer, <laughs> hold yeah, my yeah. ale. I, yeah. I think things in in actuality are a little bit more complicated than that. You you can make friends with enemies very quickly uh, if both of your lives are on the line. <laughs> if you have a, a de minimis amount of peacemaking ability and, and a slight inclination, so that alone to me made the technocracy more interesting. We had this the kind of the first virtuous conspiracy as it were within the technocracy in the same way that we get the idea of special projects division which is doing worm tainted stuff at arm's distance with pentex and this book all in all uh, thematically is has heroics into it. This doesn't feel like a world of darkness in the everything is gritty and covered in shit sense, but in the there are things that are happening that you don't understand. There are items moving in the shadows. Some of them are secrets. Some of them are mysteries. Mm -hmm. 
I like that. The world of shadows rather than the world of darkness. Mm-hmm. It's about the interplay between light and dark yes. rather than just dark. <laughs> as opposed to, but, yeah, as opposed to just dark. So we close out with some other beings in Cymru, which are vampires, werewolves, wraiths, and fomori. And I like that the notable Welsh kindred, it says, see DC by night. I haven't read DC by night, but now I'm desperately curious, which is what DC stands for. <laughs> yep. Is there a lot of Welsh people? In- I, I mean... I, I lived in D.C. for two years. I cannot recall meeting a single Welsh person in that time, but maybe they were all hiding in vampire dens. Yeah, I guess you weren't hanging out with the Welsh vampires. That's the... Yep. And then we get an appendix. We talked about the Hildu portion already, but just we have some Wales media pieces. Mm-hmm. Again, it says things like, Wales has excellent representation on the World Wide Web. Useful sites include, and then a bunch of URLs that have probably been dormant for the last 20 years. Like, proud of their independence. Reach it at blah, 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 dot co, dot UK. <laughs> yep. Yep. In terms of, like, fictional inspirational media, there's a lot more. <laughs> I mean, the Mabinogion, like I said, is such a huge folkloric thing to draw on. And the stuff that they have listed here, like... They mentioned Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising series and Lloyd Alexander's Prodine series, and both of those are excellent and fantastic. But there's also just like, I mean, I even just want to point people at Excalibur, the comic series, or Captain Britain even, you know, because <laughs> it's so steeped in like, I mean, yeah, England, but also a lot of Welsh stuff comes up. Like the whole series is structured around Merlin and stuff that he did and how people are dealing with that. And that's a very Welsh theme. Well. Oh. Also, uh, they would not have been able to do this, but uh, a lot of post-hiatus Doctor Who starting in 2005. Yeah. Well, Torchwood. Yeah, Torchwood. I mean, thinking about Son of Ether and virtual adept connections, Torchwood. There you go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They mentioned The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill and Came Down a Mountain, which I think is a very good Welsh puka film. And more recently, there's a film called Patagonia, uh, which is about the Welsh-speaking population in Argentina and that history. There's a soap opera called Publicum, which is People of the Valley. So I don't know if either of you grew up slash are still fans of David McCulley, the artist slash architectural informant. I don't know what to call him. Um, He did a series of TV specials in like the 80s and 90s, one of which was Castle. And it's kind of half him going to castles and half animation. But it's the story of castle building in wales and there's this sort of frame narrative of like the lord coming to fight against the rebel welsh it's it's very english perspective but it's very useful for kind of understanding the history of that conquest so recommended it's on youtube nice and there's dylan thomas and you know bands like manic street preachers and gorky's psychotic monkey there's a bunch of welsh media out there you just have to go looking for it. Part of it that's weird to me about this, it's like, yeah, well, this is like 3 million people in it. And you're like, that's a borough of New York. Uh, <laughs> or when they're talking about like, ah, uh, yes, a thousand years ago, I'm like, well, Wales had a population of like 230,000 in the year 1500. Winding the clock back a couple of centuries, you're like, both people there were changeling mages. Like, that's why he had to be both, because there weren't enough people. Yeah, if you think about anything with reincarnation, which definitely applies to changeling and maybe applies to mage, mm-hmm. you get the whole problem with we have 8 billion people now. Just happened. And uh, yeah, we used to have, what, 2 million? <laughs> Not that long ago. So it's like, the numbers don't. Uh, Hank Green did a thing on how the average human in history was around the year... 
was around the year zero and died before the reaching the age of 20. And you're like, is that Hank Green or John Green? Uh, the history one. John Green. John Green. Sorry, <laughs> that one. So that's the book. So this has been like an epic quest for you. How do you feel having triumphed over this book? <laughs> like you, you uh. almost like the pilgrim in Dante's Inferno, you had different guides during different portions and they left as you moved to other lands. Yeah. I remember your first interview ending with go, go. There are other worlds than these. I think that Don for me, the Dante's Inferno reference was apt. <laughs> Did you say Dante's Inferno? Dante, <laughs> Dante's. Oh my god! <laughs> totally. New story. Another storyteller vault. Exactly. <laughs> I'm here. Much like the Divine Comedy, I found it grueling and kind of ultimately unfulfilling. <laughs> so. it, it's imaginative. It showed work. Yeah. It needed a little bit of refinement to it, but I mean, there was an enthusiasm and an energy. The the people writing it seemed excited to share. It never really got didactic, which yeah. is easy to do for. A place like this where it's an island with far too much history <laughs> for its surface area yeah that being said though i feel like they were trying to thread the needle between giving storytellers and players sort of mysteries and legends to work with and do their own thing but it often seemed like they very clearly had their own idea of what was going on and then didn't give enough information to get there and that i don't know maybe that's typical of the world of darkness in general but it it gets frustrating when you have almost 200 pages that are like that. Yeah. I mean, it is still a very first ed changeling book as much as there are yeah. mage things in it. It reads like a changeling book, I think. And it, yeah, being that long and not being full of like how many pages of just photos. And there's sort of a missed opportunity because more than any of the other world of darkness games, changeling is, is grounded in myth and lore. I mean, real world myth and lore that is repurposed and repackaged and spun in its own direction. And I, I think you kind of have a spectrum of how far you go into really creating your own thing and only kind of nominally connecting to that real world lore. And in this book, they lean so far into just kind of, you know, I feel like they had stories they wanted to craft and they plugged in Wales as a setting and some Welsh names and just let it fly in the process overlooking all of the rich tradition that's already there, which would have been really cool to bring in. They're even ignoring the rich tradition that's already in Changeling from Wales. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is stuff, I don't think any of the stuff in this book like ever comes up again, except as a throwaway reference. Because mm -hmm. then they go right back to King David and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So to the question on Discord, which I think we addressed for England, but bringing it up again here, is there any lore that could have been here but wasn't tons <laughs> like the entirety of welsh folklore basically yeah and you're thinking about the book as a whole like i'm thinking we'll eventually mm -hmm. get to kith book red caps i'm like that was talking about scotland a lot in ways that were not in the scottish section yeah i enjoyed it i enjoyed reading it but i did also feel like we were kind of reviewing an entirely separate game because there was so much material so i had to keep reminding myself no this is just a supplement so technically they didn't really have to dot every I and cross every T, but it would have been nice. That's my spiel. I think your spiel is reasonable. And this book explains why it's hard to do setting books for mage because they will very quickly be just a discussion of mage because rarely is the place unto itself something special. I wish I had more information on cultural practices. I would almost, uh, if we could have cut out a third of the history and have more like 
these are the actual legends, these are the items that are important to it. And that's kind of just the way I think of as a mage player. I always want that. Mm-hmm. What are the what are the physical connections? What are the current objects that could be there? Uh, what is the contemporary space and how does that tie back to the past is generally the framing that I want to see. It had a lot in here. Luckily for mage players, you can get by with a lot of skimming <laughs> if you really just want like the <laughs> mage portions of things. I thought the frame narrative chewed up a few too many words, like the attempts to give characters personality. And you're like, this just feels like a stereotype, but I don't know. But I yeah. think it is. Yeah. The Scotland book with trying to write out the accent. Never <laughs> write a patois unless you're Stephen King. Yeah, it definitely don't do it in your, I'm going to give information for how to run a role-playing game. Yes. <laughs> and we also have a ad for... Werewolf the Wild West, which is a game I own for some reason. I don't have an ad for Werewolf the Wild West in mind. Oh, I, no. I guess they've gotten rid of it. And I also have an ad for Changing the Dreaming 2nd Edition. Yep. Coming soon. Weirdly, the Wild West ad is also in black and white. Yeah. Which, you know, given that the entirety, every other page in the book except the map is in color, it's like, oh, all right. So Shall we, shall yeah. we wrap? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what are we reading next? What are we reading well, next? Uh, we are reading The know. Enchanted next. Yes. I have a physical copy of that one. So that'll be good. Is that your book from the year of the ally? It is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, let's go. Terry, where can, thank you for being on the show. So what, what else, what else have you worked on <laughs> or working on? Uh... Uh, thank you for having me. It is glad to be on the show of a fellow member of the World of Darkness podcast network. Yeah. I, I, I vote we call it Splat the Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Line the, line the podcast yeah so yeah game line the podcast uh i i'm entirely i'm entirely fine with that but uh werewolf had to uh break ranks and be a fifth column and join uh d20 radio i think or something like mm. that um but that's entirely fine but if you would like more information about mage the ascension the world of darkness game where you're a wizard Find out more at magethepodcast.com. We have a hopin' Discord server, discord.me slash magethepodcast. We are fans of Changeling over there as we go, wow, that magic system is inspirational and creative. And Changeling people are like looking at Mage going, wow, that magic system does stuff. So we both kind of like look at each other and the grass is greener on the other side. (laughs) But we share more than we don't share. So, but gladly, thank you for having me. Yeah. Do you have any other uh, projects coming out? I know you would do some. Yes. Um, The next thing I really want to get out the door is I pick weird things to be my inspiration for Storyteller Vault Supplements. And one was someone made an offhanded mention to (laughs) in what would it be like to have an eight point domain? So domain is a background in mage. Uh, Domain, most people don't know, is from the old English word meaning useless. So... Uh, domain is kind of an area of the dream of, of your dream world that's specially yours. I will now list the mechanical benefits of having domain. Done. The- Insert cricket sound effect here. Exactly. Theoretically, it will help with certain kind of mindscape roles if you're trying to deal with quiet. And they also suggest it's a way into the um, it's it's a way into the umbra from just sleeping. So it is either wildly too powerful or useless. <laughs> As things in Mage so often are, to be fair. Yeah. And the problem I ran into that was I tried to answer the question of, so what is the relationship between the Maya and the dreaming? And I 
come up with kind of an idea where I think both of them come off getting to be cool in their own way. Mm-hmm. And I propose like a typography and a, and a hierarchy to it. But basically it's this giant shared dream realm. And I am at my best when I am rapidly reciting plot hooks that are minorly surreal. So the book is mm-hmm. mostly that. But I hope to have that out soon. There's been a, a number of delays getting in my way, but I hope to have some uh, some free space to do that. And when I do, if we would like to do a discussion on dreaming, the Maya, what do? I think that would be super fun. Excellent. I'm up for that. I also do Systematic Understanding of Everything, which is an Exalted podcast. Coming out soon, we will be doing a couple of episodes to celebrate the Kickstarter for Siderials. And they are a group within Exalted I quite like. So if you're an Exalted fan, go to exaltcast.com or look for systematic understanding of everything on the podcatcher of your choosing. I am also one of the people behind pain in the dice with our tagline of cause games are fun, but sometimes hard. And we just talk about the industry and technique of role-playing games. Uh, those are maybe once every month or two, we do an episode of those, but we have a nice little black backlog. And one of the projects we have there is RPG nomics where we talk about the economics of gaming. All of the above will be listed in the show notes. Thank yeah. you. And do you have any, uh, social media places for people to follow you besides that discord at terry robinson on the twitters do you have a blue check don't don't answer it's fine (laughs) (laughs) i do not currently have a blue check so yeah you can find us you can find our website uh changelingthepodcast.com you can find our discord through that website changelingthepodcast.com you can email us podcast at changelingthepodcast.com you can find our facebook page changeling the podcast we still have a twitter right puka for the time being. Yeah. <laughs> At the time of recording, we have a Twitter at ChangelingCast. Follow us uh, or patronize us on Patreon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash ChangelingThePodcast, right? Correct. And again, links to all of the above will be in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Thanks again, Terry, for being on the show again. I'm Josh. And I once and always remain Puka. The once and future Puka. And... Uh, don't let 90s White Wolf books try to screw up your language like they did to Welsh. Go change reality. Bye. Although this is the final episode in our trilogy on Isle of the Mighty, there's well over an hour of outtakes from the recording sessions as we jammed with our guest hosts, went down rabbit holes of folklore, mused about life, and nerded out about Celtic languages, although it might have been primarily one host who shall remain nameless who did that. At some point in the near future, these will probably become a bonus episode for our Patreon supporters, to whom we'd like to extend a special thanks. Derek, Roz Caboose, Sandshaker, Sija, and Terry Robinson. You too can help out our show by signing up at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast, or by leaving us a review on the podcast listening platform of your greatest convenience. Feel free to also tell your friends and comrades about our show, because the more, the merrier. Diochen Vaur, Ahanitron Asa, Breidwitjochenda. Here come the outtakes. Are you ready for me to say the entirety of what I know how to say in vague Welsh? Born ready. Do you ready, Medwin? That is the line that Welshy from Futurama says, and uh, apparently in Welsh it means I am very drunk. I think a literal translation is something like I am soaking wet or something like that, but. Hmm. I yeah. got the I am. I, I didn't. I don't know the vocabulary for the rest of the sentence, but awesome. Yep. The first time someone on the internet sent me a recording of Welsh being spoken, it was a Welsh changeling fan doing a recording pronouncing this longest place name in Britain. So...
That was one of the first Welsh words I learned how to say. What place is that, Puka? This would be the one called I think I messed up the the anti-penultimate syllable. But thank you, Terry, for bringing that up. I've been like thinking about since we started this episode. I'm like, oh, should I try to get Puka to say that? And I'm like, no, that would be weird. <laughs> I mean, my version of that is knowing like the first thirty-five digits of pi. So I get it. Yeah, basically. Terry, I will answer two of your questions. Okay. One, uh, Michael Scott, marry, tree guy on page eight, fuck, sheep, kill. Reasonable. And then if the book had gone out and revised, it would have had three mummies instead of one. <laughs> Thank you. One for each, one for England, one for Scotland, one for Wales. That would have been great. Although it'd be changelings would have that very distinct art house art style that they had in all the art house changeling books. Yep. Sometimes the same art pieces used from book to book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nothing Problem nothing was solved. more jarring than reading War in Concordia and turning the page and seeing the like skeleton queen Samity from the revised Vampire Storyteller's Companion over a pile of skeletons. I was like, this is not a changeling. But okay. So <laughs> so I had a bunch of fake tweets. The fake mage history, the term craft from a group not participating in the Ascension War came from Richard Thomas leading a wine and pottery night at an early White Wolf team building activity. After producing a lovely vase, Stephen Wick said, now that's magic, and the craft system was born. In an effort to stay current, Curdemain in M5 will be replaced with one of the following. Competitive diorama making, Enochian slam poetry, humble voking, or guns. Who are we shitting? It's the world of darkness. Some playtesting may be required. To stay current with millennials, M5 is going to replace nature and demeanor with day job and side hustle as the most defining creatures of your character um <laughs> that's actually that's i mean yeah i can see that happening actually. yeah that's hunter five isn't it um, yeah tired the hollowed ones dated sad <laughs> only a u.s thing wired the marshmallow ones sweet gluten-free hired the swallow ones mages that are actually a collection of trained barn swallows word the worldly colorful eats annoying bugs um <laughs> this is why I shouldn't be allowed to write things. Total tangent just reminds me that now, as of last year or something, under the old changeling rules up until before C20, all millennials are grumps. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'm, I also... I'm feeling it this week. So. Yeah. 